Welcome to Saying the Quiet Part Out Loud, a podcast from LiveRamp that uncovers what's unsaid about technology, data, and business and explores how they intersect. I'm your host, Daniela Harkins, SVP of Commercial Strategy at LiveRamp. Today's episode features a conversation about the evolution of OpenAP from a consortium to a more traditional company that helps advertisers onboard and distribute audiences to any television publishers with whom they want to work. Hear firsthand what lessons were learned from the unprecedented year that was 2020 and how those lessons will help fuel growth in 2021. With that, I turn it over to Jay Prasad, who leads strategy for LiveRamp TV. Really excited today to have as a special guest, David Levy, who is the CEO of OpenAP. Dave, happy hey, new Jay. year. Yeah, happy new year to you. I guess on a normal year, we would both be at CES today, running around frantically between the Cosmo and the Aria. Yeah, I mean, uh, of the things that I'm desperately missing, the aftermath of CES and, and how much that kind of condenses the beginning of the year, I'm, I'm certainly not missing that in many ways. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely a different year, that's for sure. It's a double-edged sword, right? The, we didn't yep. have the pressure over the holiday break to be trying to find all the best meetings to be a part of and prepping for those meetings. But at the same time, now we don't have like two quarters of potential strategy laid out based on That's the true. meetings that you That's know you true. That is true. Yeah, the efficiency of being able to meet like uh, 20 different people in one day is all in the Aria and uh, Cosmo at one time is, is, can be pretty convenient. That's true. But CES aside, as, as we get started, it'd be great just uh, to have you introduce yourself and your background in OpenAP. So I got into the ad business, gosh, back in 2005. Myself and uh, Joe Marchese and a few others started a company called Truex. And we were really focused on how can we get more efficient with consumers' time and attention? And ultimately, we were focused on this idea of if we could get consumers to interact with a much more rich experience up front and then have the rest of the show be commercial free, that could actually be an advantage for advertisers, but also for publishers. And so I started, started at Truex and then went on. We were lucky enough to have Fox acquire Truex and then went to work at Fox. And at Fox, you know, our mission was very similar. How could we look at the ecosystem and help bring new technologies to bear so that Fox could actually reduce its ad time, but get more efficient with the ad time that it actually had. And so how could we introduce other experiences that actually could compete with ad free? And so we bring a bunch of new ad products to the market, but all of them were really difficult to get scale. And I think what we found was the one product that actually got the most scale for us at Fox was the six second ad format. You can remember it from things like the World Series where we actually had this live programming where you're about to do a pitching change and you had this kind of nice transition to a quick six second ad instead of actually like, having a complete break from the programming. Right. It was like a overlay, if you will. And the broadcast didn't go to a commercial break and it was like right. a part of the experience and then right back to the action. And I think the learning for us from that was a lot of that scale had come because YouTube had already done a lot to evangelize that ad format. So they had already got, they already had a six second ad format. They already got creative agencies and media agencies to be producing those six second ad format. And what we took away from that construct was that instead of trying to push for the most innovative thing possible, if we could actually 
get more consensus across the industry and agree on some standards for where we could innovate successfully across scale and across more and more publishers, then we could have a lot more success because then brands and agencies could buy a new ad product across a much bigger swath of inventory. And so that's what really got us at Fox to lean into OpenAP. For me, working with on, on some of these challenges of bringing new innovative ad formats to, to bear into the market and working with some of these bigger networks was an exciting opportunity and one that I kind of decided to do full-time about a year ago. And it kind of just bridging my entrepreneurial interests with just my love for the TV space. Yeah, it seems like a, a real natural progression. And Fox was one of the first partners in OpenAP as well, right? So you were probably getting some exposure as this was just a concept. Yeah, yeah. We with Viacom and Warner at the time, we all kind of sat around the table and said if we could be all compromising and come together with some standards around how we do advanced advertising, we could be a lot more successful together. And that was the basic premise. And we've kind of built on top of that. How would you describe OpenAP now, right? How, and how much do you think it's changed from its original charter to how you're taking it to market now? Well, it started as initial charter more around a consortium. We're now operating it much more like a traditional company. So all the decision-making execution is all done centrally. So we have a central team now. We have a board, but they operate in a very standard board-like format. OpenAP has two core value propositions for the market. Both are centered around um, advanced audience-based advertising. And so when you think about that, what that means is instead of transacting like you do traditionally on a age and sex demo, brands are able to transact and have a guaranteed campaign across linear and digital on a more sophisticated audience segment, like a first-party data set or auto intender segment. And so OpenAP serves two core propositions there. One, we work on onboarding audiences for advertisers and then distributing those audiences to any television publisher they want to work with. And then the second thing that we do is enable availability to publisher inventory for agency buy-side tools. So agencies have been building up their own sophistication around data, and we're enabling them to plug into our inventory sources so that they can basically take the keys and actually do their own optimization around these sophisticated segments. So Dave, what you announced around your linear SSP, so supply-side platform for linear, is sometimes uh, it's a different paradigm than what most might hear from the digital point of view, as linear availability isn't often given in impressions. What you were just describing around sort of your mission to create sophisticated audience activation and distribution for television is an important one because marketers are, are moving more and more that way, right? They want parity with what they can buy from Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and television is transforming to that model, right? I think live ramps, TV offerings, and open APs are very symbiotic in that way. So how do you adapt a digital concept such as an SSP to linear and to do it across up to 10 programmers at once? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a certainly not an easy challenge. I would say, first off, our ambition and our plan for this is certainly not to afford to be linear only. This SSP will span all platforms. Uh, at the moment, it's just contemplating linear inventory, but the plan is to quickly march towards uh, executing a cross-platform SSP for television. 
And I think that's really necessary at this moment in time. The buyers are investing heavily in these data products and sophistication around these data products to figure out not only who they want to reach, but what types of goals they want to optimize for. And the only way that they can actually do that successfully is having inventory awareness of what is actually available in arguably the most constricted market in the US right now. I mean, it's it's a heavily competitive, very restrictive market for supply and demand. And so having better awareness around what is actually available relative to who your audience is, is incredibly important. And so to your question, it's not easy, but what we are attempting to do is to take the basic premise of digital and where possible, bring that level of transparency to linear buying. And do so across a wide variety. Do so the, across, right. yeah, it's the largest commingled inventory set that's been brought together to date. It's been a pretty massive undertaking. It's taken us over eight months to get done. We're excited to finally launch it with OMG and we'll we have a bunch of other agencies coming on soon. So that's going to really drive a lot of your 2021 growth, right? You're basically now bringing the other side of your two-sided marketplace live, right? Letting buyers be able to take the data that the agency has or that has been onboarded from the brand and be able to bump that up against the inventory. Do you feel that this is that year then where you could really see a almost step function like growth curve? Look, I think the biggest like that step function is going to happen most likely when the reality of cross-platform measurement and reach is a reality. I think what we're doing in linear only today is more of an incremental improvement. But where we're really actually focused for our 21 roadmap is not only breaking down the silos of a publisher, but really now laser focusing on unifying all the, the platform. So a platform buy. So how do we get better at having a unified notion of identity and therefore having campaigns being bought and measured cross-platform? There's a huge value proposition for the buy side to make that happen. Brands, in fact, are pushing that heavily through the ANA today. I think everybody realizes that the true kind of holy grail of, of what they need from an advertising perspective is just simply to understand who they're reaching where across different platforms. And the fact that understanding identity across different platforms is so difficult is a big challenge. But once we're, at least within the TV space, I do think that within the next 18 months, we will have a viable solution for cross-platform buying and measurement. And I think when that is actually in place, that's where I think you are going to start to see a step function in brands demanding that their, that their buys get measured on a cross-platform basis. And when that happens, I think it is going to see a step function in buyers moving towards identifying an audience and having that audience be the thing that's actually measured cross-platform. That also seems to be something that will help make viewing and customer experiences better. If the notion of a more relevant delivery of ads across platforms, things such as frequency capping or sequencing of creative or new factors in creative, like how you built Truex, do you really think that all of us are doing this in part with that desire to improve viewing and customer experiences? 
The biggest challenge that the industry, TV industry has by far, in my view, at least for ad-supported television, is how does it compete with ad, these ad-free environments? Advertising is an incredibly important part of the economics that produces great storytelling. But the reality is that there are new models with different funding mechanisms and different economic realities that have put a new sense of competition and pressure on ad-supported models. And the biggest threat to the TV industry at the moment is these ad-free models competing for consumers' time and attention. How does the TV industry respond to that? And the only way to do that is to get more efficient with consumers' time and produce better consumer experiences. So it's safe to say broad-based advertising, basically looking at at an age and gender and doing so in silos produces a more frustrating advertising experience for the consumer. And now that the consumer has both digital and social competing for your attention, gaming, now you even have premier prestige television without ads. So for those of us who are heavily invested in the ad-supported industry, this is do or die. Yeah, I mean, I think when you have these very broad demographics, when you're just accepting a large bucket of waste, what you end up with is a pricing someone's 30 seconds of time and attention in like a one and a half to two cent range. If consumers actually knew that, they'd be furious. And so I think we all need to get better at valuing people's time in a much more precious way and thinking about our consumers really carefully as it relates to how much messaging we're putting in front of them and how much waste we are all willing to live with. Yeah, all of this progress actually relies on better quality data and efficient use of that data. This is all needing to happen at a time where data regulation, privacy policies have never been more front and center not because yep. of the television or video industries practices, but those that are basically, we're, we're basically having to deal as an industry overall with the scale that happened in, in the digital giants. And, and now we're all trying to sort of calibrate. So right. we can still do both, right? We can still figure out how to efficiently do what you just described in an environment where we have to be much more cognizant of data and authentication and privacy. How much does that bring into your day-to-day now? Do you think we're on a good path as an industry to to be able to do both at the same time? I'm not sure if we're on a good path yet, but I do think that the TV industry is very well positioned in a data-driven advertising world with new regulations being put in place. And the reason I say that is because ultimately, if you get through all the technical elements of this, ultimately what we are saying, and what I think the government is likely to say is that we need to be a lot more transparent with consumers around how we're using their data, what data we're using, and getting their consent to do so. And I think the content and publishers that are going to be able to do that successfully are those that are producing valuable content that consumers are willing to pay for. As television publishers, our job is going to be able to have really good user experiences where we can make it very clear what your choices are as a consumer. You'll likely have choices where you can have ad-free experiences, but you'll also likely have choices that have advertising, hopefully that's incredibly relevant advertising, 
but we're able to communicate to consumers that look, if you give us information about what advertising you do like, we can deliver more relevant advertising to you and we could probably provide you a cheaper overall plan. And I think television has a better opportunity to have that conversation with folks than a lot of other publishers do because of the stickiness and quality of the content. We're definitely seeing a trend because of the nature of being data-driven, the notion that as video becomes IP delivered more and more, that every impression could be addressable. But in order to do that, you now have to have consent. And what does consent do? It helps you, of course, be on the right side of regulations, but it also builds a direct value exchange with a viewer or a customer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And it gives you those foundations. So, right, it's not easy to do and it's going to take time. And I think the recalibration that a lot of companies in our space have taken is that, you know what, it's going to have some initial rollback in terms of my volume capability. But by doing it this way, a year from now, I will be in a much better place. You know, I think a lot of us would do well with just putting ourselves in the consumer's shoes and thinking about what we would all be comfortable with. I think a lot of us that are really active in social media, sometimes advertising can be incredibly creepy, right? It's like, I just bought something and all of a sudden I'm seeing all these athletic clothing ads or whatever. And it can be really creepy if you don't understand how this advertising is being served to you. But when we think about things like Pandora or Spotify or customizing an experience for ourselves, a lot of times we're really engaged with making sure that that algorithm is incredibly custom and relevant to us. And so I think we just need to do a much better job at communicating with consumers around how we're using data, why it can be good for them from an advertising experience, and then what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with. And ideally, that conversation can lead to a lot less advertising, but advertising that's more effective and relevant. That's a really interesting concept, what you just described, which is that in a music platform like Spotify or maybe even a Netflix, you kind of care about what things are being recommended to you or what the next song is going to be, but that hasn't really been done for advertising. But now we're in a position where we could start to make the ads you see be more like a fine-tuned playlist. Yeah, the more interaction that you can have and feedback loop that you can have with advertising, I think the better. I think consumers will lean into that. And the more that we can find advertising, it's not only relevant, but types of advertising messages that people like and, and are comfortable with, as long as we're open and clear about how we're using that data and information and we protect people's PII, then I think we're going to be on the right side of things. And that will, that will result in more consumers coming to these platforms. Right. And them not being frustrated or annoyed and sort of taking to social media because yeah. they're so sick of a particular ad or they just give up on a certain app because it's becoming maddening. I mean, we all care about our algorithms too and what's served to us. Like I, I find myself all the time curating my experience because I know if I click on something, I'm going to see more of it. And I consciously think about that. I'm like, I, you know what? I actually don't want to see more of this. I think that's something that we have to start instilling more in our advertising and being a lot more responsive, but also making people aware that how they interact with it, what type of data they, they give will hopefully enable them to have better ad experiences than they're having today. Dave, it goes without saying that 
2020 was a challenging year in so many aspects. It almost seems trite to say so because it's something so obvious. But there's a lot of lessons probably learned and new skills developed. What would you say your biggest lesson learned was? And what new skill did you have to employ to manage such lessons? Well, yeah, 2020 was a definitely a difficult year on, on many levels for everyone. And I think first to first and foremost, I think leading off with empathy and trying to understand how difficult the situation has been for millions of folks is, is really key. But I'd say the biggest lesson that I, that I learned was just how resilient we are as people. I think from small things like in our own industry to not only being able to adapt to more of a virtual environment, but I think thrive in many ways and being incredibly productive and efficient. But the resiliency that I'm seeing from small businesses around the country is just incredible. And I think I, I've taken a lot of inspiration from restaurant owners, gym owners, and all these folks that have had everything thrown at them with really little resources, continually innovating. And it's just inspiring, I think, to see that, you know, in the face of adversity, I think a lot of, a lot of folks out there, the majority of people will move towards innovation. They won't just stay stuck in the mud. And I think that's really important. When you get through adversity, you always come out stronger on the other end. I've learned that throughout my career. And this is, I think, a, a nationwide, worldwide adversity that we're all coming through. But I do think that we're all going to be stronger at the end. All of these businesses are now going to have, at the other end of this, ideally, they're going to have this new set of tools that they're going to be able to employ that work not only in a difficult situation, but also hopefully in a, in a more normalized situation. And so hopefully it opens up even more revenue opportunities for folks. But you know, look, overall, I'm encouraged by what I see. So being that you know, we're both in the, in the TV and video business, everyone had a lot of time at home last year. What uh, subscription show and what show with ads did you really get into and maybe even binge? I found myself in, in this COVID world kind of building a makeshift gym. And then my exercise routine is now I, I'll, I'll have a show on at the same time. So I have been able to binge a, a little bit. I guess this kind of goes in between both a network show and now being viewed on, on Netflix is, is West Wing. So I found myself in this weird political time being drawn to rewatching West Wing and kind of just seeing the stories there around you know how that White House was run. And it, it, was, a, it was a good comfort show for 2020. And then, look, I think as an LA sports fan, I, I would say my ad-supported television was primarily consistent in 2020 of watching my Dodgers finally win one and the Lakers win. So for LA fans, it was quite a good year. So that was my, yeah. I'd say, yeah. ad-supported focus. A constrained optimism, right, that took over LA sports and Hey, we, we could win another one. We could win a third with the Rams. We'll see. Well, fantastic. I thought this was really fun and entertaining, but also insightful on uh, some key things that happened last year moving into this year. So, Yeah, I always enjoy talking to you. Likewise. Thanks, Jay. You too. This podcast was brought to you by LiveRamp. You can find us online at LiveRamp.com and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at LiveRamp. Subscribe to Saying the Quiet Part Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you listen to podcasts.